Good morning. Good to see you all. We are continuing uh, with the Platform Sutra book study, the story and teachings of uh, Huineng, Sixth Patriarch. Uh, we, we have covered, uh, first in the second session, we have covered uh, the biography of Huineng, how he came about uh, becoming, actually, the Sixth Patriarch. And then uh, last Sunday, if you remember, I gave a Taisho about uh, an incident that took place after Huineng uh, became the successor and ran away and uh, one of the monks caught up with him. So we are now on section 12. And this is where the actual teachings begin. I have come here today because I have a connection of many lifetimes with you officials, clerics and lay people. This teaching has been passed down by the ancients. It isn't something I discovered by myself. But if you wish to hear this teaching of the ancient, you must listen with pure minds. And if you wish to get rid of your delusions, you should understand it as past generations have. Huineng then yelled out, good friends. You already possess the Prajna wisdom of enlightenment. But because your minds are deluded, you can't understand by yourself. You need to find a truly good friend to show you the way to see your nature. Good friends, Buddha nature isn't different for the ignorant and for the wise. It's just that people are deluded or awake. When people are deluded, they're ignorant. When they wake up, they become wise. So this is the section. Now, commentaries. Huineng taught for over 40 years, but he only taught one teaching, which was the same teaching Bodhidharma brought to China. We are all Buddhas. We just don't know it. Still, not everyone wants to hear this teaching. This is because the world of delusion we have constructed over countless lifetimes can be so convincing and so satisfying. Few of us call it into question. It isn't until our lives are so fraught with contradictions and suffering and we can barely hold them together that we finally begin to ask questions and look for answers. At, the mom at that moment, we need a good friend to show us the way out of this house of cards that burns with the fires of anger and greed. And Huineng is truly a good friend. Now, this is raising a very important point, and we call it bodhicitta. So the, the, the fact that we're all here today, sitting, listening, practicing together, chanting together. This is not by chance. This is not just because. The reason we're here has everything to do with what happened up to now to us, with us, whether it's this lifetime or past lifetimes. We have done things. We have made decisions. We have realized what we have realized 
enough to bring us to practice, enough to find practice appealing. There are so many people that don't find it appealing at all and even reject practice, find it uninteresting or may find it intellectually interesting, but definitely not willing to or interested in actually practicing. So it's not by chance and and it has everything to do with karma. Now, I want to say a few words about, uh, or read from the commentary, uh, Bill Porter's commentary on karma versus fate, so we can understand it better. He said, the fact that this sutra has now fallen into our hands suggests that we are not totally hopeless. It should be noted, however, that the Buddhist concept of karma is different from the Western concept of fate. Karma merely sets the stage Fate gives us the play already written, right? So karma means what's possible, not what's predetermined. Now, and this is a very important point because the fact that we are here or we have found the Dharma appealing is just an entry point, right? Bodhicitta is an entry point. And bodhicitta can be, uh, can be nurtured or may go back to being dormant based on what we do with it, based on how we practice, based on, on how careful we are in the way we are practicing. And what he was saying here about, I'm going to read back to this, go back to how we create or we construct a life that seems to be, the world of delusion seems to be very convincing to us. And it is very convincing, even if it is creating, even if we know it's creating Lots of suffering. Still, it is familiar. We find ourselves in that. We find comfort in it. We find others in it. It makes sense. So, with suffering, with the challenges, with the difficulties, with the, the fact that it doesn't essentially deliver what it is promising to deliver, still, it is so convincing that often practice seems to be threatening. And it is, in fact, threatening. And what is threatening, it is the, the house of cards that we built. And the problem with that, second, let me just allow somebody in. And the problem with that is that we, the more we, the more we reside in delusion, the more we create delusion. So, you know, uh, there are movies that have been created. Uh, for example, the Truman Show, the Matrix and other movies, and it's not by chance, too. Those movies are representing something in us that knows that we are trapped, that knows that we are trapping ourselves. A movie can be entertaining, and, and that's all. Or it can be a catalyst. It can awaken something within that knows. So once it's awakened, as he says here, we need a good friend or good friends that will help us nurture bodhicitta, that will help us nurture the spark within, that the spark of, of Buddhahood within, which we all are endowed with. That's not in question. And this is where a teacher comes in. This is where a sangha comes in. This is why a sangha is considered a treasure. Because without the Sangha, without the teacher, without guidance, without the teachings, 
nothing essentially will change in terms of who we are or what we are in essence, but it will remain dormant. And when it remains dormant, we maintain delusions. We keep the delusions alive. That's the only thing that is going to be different. Now, delusions, and I'm going to read from Bill Porter's commentaries. Buddhists use this word in reference to, our, to four mistaken beliefs. The beliefs that something that is impermanent is permanent, the self. The belief that something that is impure is pure. The belief that something that is painful is pleasurable. And the belief that something that has no independent existence has independent existence. All of our delusions can be subsumed under one of these four mistaken beliefs. So, obviously, this is what creates, or this is how we create a delusion or delusions. By holding on to a self, we hold on to the self that is grasping something or someone. And as long as we don't bring those assumptions up or put them on the table and examine is that true? Is that real? Then it, it, we sustain it. It becomes real and it stays real for us. The fact that it's not true doesn't make it not true for us. So it's important to point that calling it delusion is not enough. We have to verify on our own that it is indeed a delusion, right? And therefore we have, for that we have a Sangha. We have good friends. We have Dharma brothers and sisters, so we can sustain the practice, so we can sustain the inquisitiveness of delusion. Now, enlightenment, so this is again from Bill Porter's commentary. This refers to the perception of things and dharmas as they really are, as no things and no dharmas, as full of light. It is Perception without a, perce a perceiver or object perceived. There isn't any other enlightenment. Our enlightenment is the same as every Buddha's. Things are, are as they are. That's not in question. The fact that, again, the fact that we create ideas or, or veneers or overlays on top of that doesn't change it. Things are always as they are. So when we look at our uh, zazen, for example, you know, when we have moments or if seconds or periods of bliss or blissful experiences in zazen, when we don't go along with thoughts, when there is some sense of at peace or, or, or quietude within, we realize something, we experience something, and it's incredible. Now, at other moments, when the mind comes and we follow along, we follow along and we may experience chaos. We may experience unrest, unease. But what we experience when we are at ease doesn't go anywhere. It's always there. It's just that we get distracted. Because we get distracted, it seems as if it's not there. But those, those moments of bliss, they're always there. It's just that our attention goes elsewhere. And this is why it's so important to stay at it again and again, to watch the mind, to observe the emotions, 
to observe, observe how we get caught up and follow thoughts, follow emotions, how we create more thoughts from thoughts. Just observe, just keep returning to this nothingness, to this blissfulness, which is the same thing. And it requires, it requires practicing again and again and again and again. Not just sitting again and again, but when we sit, to again and again return to what is already. And what is already is not a thing. This is what makes it so difficult because we are accustomed to functioning in, in the world of things. And when we are in uh, a realm of thingslessness or nothingness, we can't find anything. We can't find ourselves. We can't find the other. We can't find anything that is familiar. This is why it is tempting to create delusions. It is tempting to create a self or to create parameters. Because we can find everything there and make sense to us. So... Again, we, we have said many times before, we talked about many times before, that, that if we are okay with not having to make sense of everything, then we can little by little find that freedom of nothingness and in a way get lost in space, on spaciousness. Just find ourselves little by little drifting into that nothingness. And what we experience there is definitely not what we, uh, what we think we will experience or what we expect. Because how can nothing obey something? How, how can nothing be like something? Our idea of enlightenment is something, is a thing, is an idea, is fixed. Now, when, when we take this and we compare it with spaciousness, there's no comparison. There's just nothing to compare. And this is why we want to go back again and again to what seems familiar to us, to what, to what makes sense for us. Although it is we know it's creating suffering, still it makes sense. Still there is the, the, the illusion of grasping. So instead of looking often, instead of looking at what we are grasping, we just stick with grasping. And here... He's suggesting, let's look at that. Let's examine what is it that we are holding on to and who is holding on to this. Now, he talks about we have to pur purify your mind if you want to receive the teachings, if you want to encounter nothingness. And this is from Shodo Harada's commentary. And he said, when we let go of our knowledge of any idea of various, on, of various levels of attainment, we are all equals. It is the knowledge we hang on to that makes it hard to distinguish between good or bad. When there is no ego filter, we naturally want to do good things without any individual stance or preconceived ideas. We can see and receive this teaching of actual truth. This is Buddha nature prior to any preconceived notion. So prior to any preconceived notions, we are equal. 
Nobody or nothing is above anything else or below anything else, right? So, so that sense of poverty mind, that sense of insufficiency is born from thoughts, is born out of emotions. When thoughts and emotions are left alone in a way, not rejected, not deleted, not pushed aside, but left alone, left alone to do what they do, then who is above who? What is below what? Where are you? Where do you find yourself? Before the mind moves, before one thought appears, or while thoughts appear and disappear, where do you find yourself? So we run, we run back again and again to likes and dislikes. Why? Because this is exactly where we find ourselves. I don't like this, I like that. This is my opinion and it's against your opinion. I am better, I am worse, I'm good, I'm bad. And on and on and on. We think it, we speak it, and we do it. Well, obviously, as long as we keep acting like this, we sustain it, we sustain delusion. I like practice or I don't like practice. This is too much for me, it's not enough for me. This is exactly what we are working with. How many times you've heard it? How many times you thought it? How many times I've heard it from people, from practitioners and other Dharma teachers? We, we can talk about it for hours on end, about how people complain, how people say, I don't like and I do like. Well, great. It's wonderful to actually acknowledge the mind that likes and dislikes, and then bring that mind to the practice or bring the practice to that mind and then see what happens. Stay with it. You like it, stay with it. You don't like it, stay with it. Keep practicing. It is magical, but it, is, but it requires that we stick with it. Not by force, not to strap ourselves down to a cushion, but to, to constantly cultivate the willingness, the willingness to bring it all to the practice, to put it all on the line and examine. And also the willingness to be supported by each other, which is extremely important. And again, I'm going back to uh, continue with Shodalada's commentary. He said, we all want to resolve our life's problems, but doing so, doing so is not necessary in order for our mind to open. Our Buddha nature is like the sun, able to illuminate all the dark places in our mind. This is not something we have to find. We can be that sunshine completely, to let go of all our thoughts until we are holding on to nothing at all. This is Zazen. Zazen done with gloomy face while holding on to many thoughts is not real Zazen. Now, it's, what he's saying here is not enough to just sit down, just connect a butt to a cushion. That's not going to do it. What you do on the cushion matters. How are we sitting? So to sit, we can sit and perpetuate delusion. And then we think, well, Zazen doesn't work for me. Well, of course, it's not going to work for you. It's not meant to work for that. It's meant to shine light 
on that that's on that which says it doesn't work for me. And that's exactly what we have to let go of. We have to let go of the one who wants something out of zazen. Then zazen works. Not for the one who sits down and wants something out of it. It's a very important point because I think often if we are honest, often we, we can see that we are not sitting correctly. We may be having good posture, so the posture may be correct. Attention to the breath may be correct. But what we do with the mind, what we do with our thoughts, is the question. How do we meet the one who has a lot to say about everything? How do we meet that which constantly comments in the background about everything and everybody that we encounter. That's the question. Not just on the cushion, all the time. From the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep. And that's real practice. We can say that a part of that, there is no other practice. So we can... We can uh, go there and not go there at different times, but this is actual practice. Whether we practice it or not, that is always the same. So, anybody wants to uh, comment on that before we move on to uh, section 13? A uh, quick question, a quick comment? So one of the things that I think, at least for me, um, is maybe creates resistance is that in order to achieve this state that you're talking about, there is a certain level of surrender that we have to, you know, acknowledge that we have to surrender to this, this idea that we can't keep everything at arm's length all the time that it's not that thing out there that I can define and hold in my hand and make a certain way, that things are a certain way and it's that surrender to that and then ultimately the acceptance of that that allows us the freedom to take the next step. So I think that can be a scary part for some people and it can be a scary part for me. That's what I wanted to say. Thank you. So uh, here's a question, does it work? Does grasping work, right? So we may be terrified to let go, but maybe instead of that, we have to ask, does it, has it ever worked for me? Did it ever deliver some sense of, some lasting, sense of lasting contentment? So grasping, having, holding, what does that do? Right? Because as practitioners, we need to examine on the go. Not just what the practice is telling us to do, right? It may, say, it may be saying, do this, this, and that. Let go, release, or whatever. But okay, fine. I have a problem with letting go. Does holding on work is the question, right? And I think that if we ask that question and if we look at, at our lives so far and we realize again and again, it has never worked. It doesn't work. And then we look around. We've got other people. They run around like a chicken without a head trying to get somewhere or achieve something only to realize again and again that it's not working. So since it's not working 
and we see it in ourselves, in our own lives, then I think we can use our own experiences to fuel our practice rather than to trust the practice. We just have to look within. What works? And then those moments of nothingness in our zazen, right? Even if they're just split seconds. We are encountering something, right? We are experiencing something. In that, in those split seconds, who is holding on to what? Obviously, there is nothing there. There is nothing to hold on to. And there's no need to hold on to. Now, while it, is, it may be uh, terrifying, it is also incredibly blissful at the same time. Right? I mean, we all know that from experience. And that's what we have to study. Because what we're studying is really not the, the script, scriptures or the sutras. We're studying ourselves. And, and as long as we are studying ourselves, we become our teachers. We become the teacher. And what could be more convincing than our own experiences? Right? So, like anything else, instead of externalizing it, we have to internalize. We have to turn it around. What am I doing? What am I thinking? What am I saying? Why am I saying this? What are the energies that are fueling this kind of beliefs or ideas or, or, or what I'm trusting? Because we're trusting something. Does that work? Thank you. Okay, anyone else before we move on? Okay. Kakua, quickly, and then move on. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, just it's, it's, uh, what you're saying makes me think that um, this idea that everyone that we meet is the Buddha. But I just was thinking about this. Good friends, you already possess the progeny wisdom of enlightenment. But you need to find a truly good friend to show you the way to see your nature. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that anybody can be such a friend? Or are we looking for a particular thing? So, Buddha recognizes Buddha, Buddha bows to Buddha, right? So, yes, uh, somebody who is seeing you from the Buddha eye, through the Buddha eye, will not see high and low, right? Will not perpetuate poverty mind, right? Will see you as equal, because the Buddha eye does not see unequal, right? So, and you will know, we know when somebody sees us, for who we are, not just that we know it, we feel it, right? When you're in the presence of someone who sees you as equal, how does it feel? Good. (laughs) Incredible, right? Nurturing. Doesn't it feel nurturing, right? Because, Because it gives you permission to put aside everything you think about yourself, everything you think you're not, everything you think you are. It gives you permission to put it aside, take a deep breath and just be. Right? Now that would be a good friend. Or that would be good friendship. Right? And this is, in a way, what we want to uh, echo or mirror to each other. Not just the teacher, mm-hmm. right? but to each other as practitioners. This is, we are essentially all equal. We don't trust that. We don't believe that. Primarily because we're not seeing reality through the Buddha eye. Right? 
seeing from the Buddha eye, it's, it's just like that. It's just one. One does not increase, one does not decrease. Mm. Yeah, so people that are deluded or awake, I guess the awake part in us recognizes the awake in someone else, and the deluded in us recognizes the deluded in someone else. Yes, right, exactly. And, and often people actually perpetuate delusion in each other, right? Mm, because, yeah. because it's the deluded in me that is going to respond or react to the deluded in you. Right? Therefore, there are conflicts, obviously, right? And I'm going to fight that, right? Because delusions are delusions, right? But then when you bring the light, right? When you bring uh, Prajna to that, wisdom to that, or the Buddha to that, then, yeah, that's... So, so seeing from the Buddha, all centers sees a center in a way, right? Yeah. Not the mind, not, not the thinking mind but your center. So in Aikido, we talk often about connecting from center to center. Yes. Yeah, you're using your arms, obviously using your body, using your trunk, right? But the connection is actually center to center. When the connection is center to center, you're not muscling because you're not relying on the arm because the arm is obeying the center rather than itself or its own ideas. And it becomes a lot more powerful and it becomes easier to follow too. Mm. Yeah. So, thank you. Good point. Okay, 13. Good friends, this Dharma teaching of mine is based on meditation and wisdom. But don't make a mistake of thinking that meditation and wisdom are separate. Meditation and wisdom are of one essence and not two. Meditation is the body of wisdom, and wisdom is the function of meditation. Wherever you find wisdom, you find meditation. And wherever you find meditation, you find wisdom. Good friends, what this means is that meditation and wisdom are the same. Fellow students of the way, be careful. Do not think that meditation comes first and then gives rise to wisdom or that wisdom comes first and then gives rise to meditation or that meditation and wisdom are separate. For those who hold such views, the Dharma is dualistic. If the mouth speaks of goodness but the mind doesn't think of goodness, meditation and wisdom aren't the same. But if goodness pervades both the mouth and the mind, if what is external and internal are alike, then meditation and wisdom are the same. The cultivation of self-awareness does not involve argument. People who argue about which comes first and which comes second only confuse themselves. Unless you put an end to right and wrong, you will give rise to self-existent dharmas. And you will never be free of the four states, the self being life and the soul, or giving rise to self being life and the soul. Uh, from the Diamond Sutra, you may remember that from our study. So, <clears throat> the commentaries. In this section, Huineng brings up the aspect of non-duality within the practice of meditation and the manifestation of wisdom. 
in terms of our everyday life, non-duality is expressed through seamless practice or total integration of being and doing. You won't find that in the commentary. It's my own commentaries. When the being and the doing are unified and actualized, no one is doing anything and wisdom naturally flourishes. Right? So when the being and the doing are unified and actualized, no one is doing anything and wisdom naturally flourishes. Now Bill Porter says, <coughs> body, function. These categories were used in China by a number of philosophers philosophical schools to analyze reality in much the same way scientists now they analyze matter as particles body or waves function these have nothing to do with reality they simply represent convenient points of view for what cannot be viewed right so what he's saying here is that we use such terms to point at what cannot what cannot be viewed basically any differentiation between the two can only be relative there is no real difference so there are no real differences so we have a koan that says distinguish the body and function of wind what is the body of wind and what is the function of wind what is the body of meditation and what is the function of wisdom right seeing that as non-dual is essential well, seeing anything or everything as non-dual is essential because seeing anything as two can create a problem. Not necessarily that it will, but it can. As long as we don't understand it as mere functional or mere for, only for functionality, right? Obviously, we have to see differentiation, but we have to see differentiation while all the time seeing that what is different is the same. What is different is always the same. There is always the sameness within the differences. Right? And that's, again, back to the Buddha eye. The Buddha eye, always, when the Buddha eye is open, then one can see sameness within the differences. And one does not fall into developing, cultivating poverty mind. I am not good, I'm insufficient, I am, others are better than me, or I'm better than others, right? Or I like or I dislike, falling beyond the, the, the functionality of likes and dislikes. Of course, we have our preferences, but, but we have to be careful not to, be not to create a self, a fixed self from preferences, from likes and dislikes. So to clarify the non-duality of meditation and wisdom, Bill Porter brings up an example from the, uh, the records of Shen Hui. He says, Master Che asked, what does it mean to say that meditation and wisdom are the same? Shen Hui answered, when thoughts don't arise and nothing at all is present, this is called true meditation. To be able to see thoughts not arising and nothing at all present is called true wisdom. If you are capable of this, wherever there is meditation, there is body of wisdom. And wherever there is wisdom, there is the function of meditation. Thus, when there is meditation, it is not separate from wisdom. And when there is wisdom, it is not separate from meditation. Thus, 
where there is meditation, there is wisdom. And when there is wisdom, there is meditation. And where, where there is meditation, there is no wisdom. And when there is wisdom, there is no wisdom. Why is this? Because it is their nature that is real. This is what the cultivation of meditation and wisdom are the same means, right? So there is and there is no. Because, again, all those, we use such words to point at something. We use it so we can understand how to practice, not so we can create something out of it. Because as soon as we create something out of it, we have something to break through. We have something to get beyond. We have something to either hold on to or let go of. Right? So here is a problem. Here is what I'm afraid to let go of. Why? I'm creating it. Well, of course, I'm creating it. I, because I created it, I developed feelings towards what I created. I don't want to let it go. I don't want to let it go. Right? If you remember Shantideva, magicians fall in love with the mirage woman they themselves create. We create ourselves. We fall in love with ourselves. Even when we think we are not good, even if we think that we are not worthy, we fall in love with not being worthy or with the idea of not being worthy, of not being good enough or be, being better than others, being smarter, being whatever. And this is what we don't want to let go of. Well, of course not. We created it. Creating it, we develop feelings towards it, we develop thoughts towards it, we develop a self around it. And then how do we let it go? It becomes an issue. So, from the Sutra, it says, unless you put an end to right and wrong, you will give rise to self-existent dharmas. You will never be able to be free of the four states. Now, self-existent dharmas. And this is, again, an example of what we just talked about. Among Buddhists, this is Bill Potter, among Buddhists, the defining quality that separates one thing from another was called svabhava, self-existence. This term was applied to dharmas as well as to beings. Just as we think of ourselves as having a self, we also think of things and concepts as having an independent existence. However, it is the analysis of dharma and beings, the search for their self-existent qualities, and the realization that neither dharmas nor beings possess a self or self-existence that results in liberation. And this is the point, right? Examine. Exa don't just take it for granted. I am not good. I am better than. I like this. I don't like that. I'm holding on to this. I can't let go of that. Examine. What's going on here? When, when, when thoughts are not, when thoughts do not arise, even if it's momentarily, is there such a thing? Is there such a thing? Or, or is that thing that we think is there dependent on thoughts arising? When thoughts do not arise, there is nothing there. And he's not saying, take my word for it. All he's saying is, stay determined to the examination process. Keep the practice alive, no matter what. This is why the great determination is probably one of the most important aspects of practice. 
no matter what, keep practicing, keep examining. You close your eyes, open them. You fall asleep, wake up. You fall down, get up. Keep going. You get caught up in a thought, examine it. What's going on here? You know, Velcro has two sides, right? If you don't stick to it, it doesn't stick to you. You can't just say, well, you know, it's because of my past. It's because, of yes, all those things may have happened in the past. But today I am giving, I am giving the stickiness on my end, on my side to that. Therefore, it sticks to me. Whether I like it or don't like it, it sticks to me. Because I'm giving something to it to be stuck on. It's actually very simple. Not that the practice is simple. The practice is, is challenging because we are so habituated to do exactly that. So it is a challenge. But, but the, the, what Buddhism teaches is actually very simple. Because Buddhism does not teach anything other than who we are in essence. Buddhism does not try to teach anything else. That's why Huineng is a wonderful example of classic Buddhist teachings. He was uneducated. He was illiterate. But of course he was able to realize. How could he not be able to realize? Since what is being realized is always there, was always there, will always be there. It doesn't matter. So, so it's not so much that what we need to realize, we have to search for that. We have to look at the way we get in the way of what we need to realize. Again, which is where their practice is at. So, I'm going to take a break from talking and uh, see if you have anything to say or ask about that. Any thoughts, questions, concerns, likes, dislikes? I see some smiles, but uh, is that as far as we go? Raisan, why don't you say a few words? I think you want to. Um, no, not particularly. Just, um, um, I just think this is very meaty stuff. I mean, this is all, you know, what we're, what we're concerned with. Um, um, nothing more than that. Thank you. Yes, this is uh, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is what matters, right? This is it. It uh, this sutra is uh, uh, so simple and so deeply profound that it can be overlooked, right? But uh, but it goes to the heart of it. It really goes to the heart of it in in a very clear and simple way. So we may not want to see that at times, right? Because we, it may not be entertaining to the mind, right? To the thinking mind, to the intellect, but it's where real practice happens. So, yeah. Okay, last chance. Move on. Anyone else? Okay. 14. 
One practice samadhi means at all times, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, always practicing with a straightforward mind. Now, these are the four modes of the Buddha, as some of you know. So, lying down, sitting, standing, walking around, the four modes of the Buddha. Why? Because this is how we function, right? We always find ourselves in one of those modes. So, what he's saying here is, at all times, at all times, practice with a straightforward mind. The Vimalakirti Sutra says, a straightforward mind is the place of enlightenment. And a straightforward mind is the pure land. Do not practice hypocrisy with your mind. While you talk about being straightforward with your mouth, if you speak about one practice samadhi with your mouth, but you don't practice with a straightforward mind, you're no disciple of the Buddha. Simply practice with a straightforward mind and do not become attached to any dharma, any teaching. This is what is meant by one practice samadhi. Deluded people who cling to the external attributes of a dharma get hold of one practice samadhi and just say that sitting motionless, eliminating delusion and not thinking about thoughts are one practice samadhi. But if that were true, a dharma like that would be the same as lifelessness and would constitutes an obstruction of the way instead. The way has to flow freely. Why block it up? The way flows freely when the mind doesn't dwell on any dharma. Dwelling nowhere raises body-mind. Once it dwells on something, it becomes bound. If sitting motionless were right, Vimalakirti wouldn't have criticized Shariputra for meditating in the forest. Good friends, I know there are people who tell others to devote themselves to sitting and contemplating their minds of purity and not to move or think. Deluded people are unaware, so they turn things upside down with their attachments. There are hundreds of such people who teach the way like this, but they are, you should know, greatly mistaken. So they're greatly mistaken. And he's talking about practices that, uh, or, or ancient practices that told people to turn away from the body, to close everything, to shut down everything, to reject the body. Or maybe uh, practices that sprouted out of asceticism and then maybe were changed or adapted later on, which is what the Buddha did for six years and realize it doesn't work. And what he's saying here is that we have to bring our practice to moment-by-moment life and examine, am I holding on to something? What am I holding on to? Am I creating on the go? When we don't have any parameters, when we don't have anything, anything at all, to identify with, we raise the body-mind. And that's the challenge, because... It is, it requires a, a complete and total letting go. This is from the commentaries. When Huineng told his audience to purify their minds, his teaching was over. The rest of his sermon at Tafan Temple 
was meant to prevent people from misunderstanding such a simple teaching. Normally, this is the first step in meditation practice, purifying our minds. But he tells us to stop right there. He doesn't instruct us any further in meditation, because to do so would be to differentiate meditation from this pure mind of ours. As long as our minds are pure, it doesn't matter if we are sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. A pure mind is one practice samadhi. And all that matters in the practice of one practice samadhi is a pure, straightforward mind. This is meditation, and this is wisdom. Meditation and wisdom are only separate for those who are deluded. All that matters is a straightforward, pure mind. Now, on samadhi, he says, uh, describing samadhi, he says, this is the Sanskrit term that refers to the concentration of the mind on a single object to the point where the separation of the object from the subject disappears. As with most Buddhist terms, Huineng uses this somewhat differently. Normally, it is understood as a state of concentration attained during meditation. But for Huineng, it is the practice to be engaged in at all times and in all places, namely the state of a straightforward mind, which is no state at all. Now, Sekida describes that as uh, the word samadhi as absolute samadhi and positive samadhi. And what he refers to in absolute samadhi is samadhi in meditation, in zazen, where nothing happens at all or nothing is, there are no differentiations or everything is appear, everything appears as one. Everything is uh, uh, realized or experienced as one. Body and mind drop away. And then he has another term, which he calls positive samadhi, referring to functioning in everyday life. And what Huineng is talking about here is one, one samadhi. So he does not differentiate between what we experience on the cushion and our everyday life, moment by moment functioning, right? Which kind of makes sense because the, the only reason we... We, call, we may call it absolute samadhi or positive samadhi is just so we can understand what it means to constantly practice, right? To, to, to constantly work on cultivating straightforward mind, be it on a cushion, be it at work, cooking a meal, talking to somebody, going to sleep, waking up, it doesn't matter. Work on cultivating moment by moment samadhi especially when we get irritated, especially when we get triggered by life, right? So when we get triggered by life, when we get pissed off with someone or something that happens, we may want to run back to the cushion and find some kind of a sense of solace on the cushion, turn away from, turn our backs to everyday life. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Not that we will not find some sense of solace on the cushion. It's just that that will remain on the cushion. And that will not be true practice. True practice must be practiced at all times. At all times. Now, uh, in the reference to uh, Vimalakirti and Shariputra, 
So I want to read from that. This is from the Vimalakirti Sutra. When the Buddha asked Shariputra to call on the sick, on the sick layman, Shariputra declined saying, I remember in the past when I was meditating in the forest in the foot of a tree, Vimalakirti came up to me and said, Shariputra, this isn't meditation. Now he was meditating at that time and he was a very devout practitioner. So he said to him, this isn't meditation. Meditation means not letting your body or mind appear in the three realms, desire, form, and formlessness. Meditation means conducting your life without leaving the stillness of samadhi. Conducting your life without leaving the stillness of samadhi. That's the straightforward mind. Meditation means engaging in ordinary activities without giving up the teachings of the way. Meditation means not letting go of your mind, not letting your mind dwell internally or externally. Meditation means cultivating the 37 aids of enlightenment while remaining unmoved by any views. Meditation means entering nirvana without putting an end to passion. Nothing needs to be put aside. Nothing needs to be deleted. Nothing needs to be rejected. No one needs to be rejected. Because if there is, again, if there is something or someone that we need to turn away from, turn our backs to, or reject or delete, we are creating something. As long as we create something, we are deluded. Or we are practicing delusion. As long as there are, as long as we function within firm or fixed ideas of likes and dislikes, or, or self and other, in and out, now and later, now and before, we are creating delusions. We are creating something that we need to, that we think we need to let go of. How is it possible? How can we let go if there is nothing there, a part of our own creations? And it can be very frustrating. It can be terrifying too. Because we are trying to do something that essentially is impossible. So we can feel defeated. We can feel discouraged. And we may actually, and people do, give up a practice because they think that this is what practice is meant to do. Or they think that this is what we meant to do with the practice. It's not possible. Because there is nothing there. Just few, uh, one uh, short paragraph from Shodo Arada on actualizing a straightforward mind. <clears throat> he says, in our living zazen, living zazen, we are liberated from thinking, not because we are making efforts not to think, but because... When our essence is deep, we have no thoughts to grasp. When our essence is superficial and shallow, our mind is like a beehive that has been struck with a stick. That's what we feel. That's why it feels so chaotic. And this is why it becomes so challenging or we become so uh, distraught in our everyday life. So straightforward mind. Cultivate a straightforward mind at all times. Are you doing it? Are we doing it?
What does that mean for you? So, few minutes. Let's see where we're at. Yes, go for it. Um, I think, you know, it, it was uh, thinking about what the challenge of the straightforward mind or, or how to how to realize that we are all Buddhas, you know, and at the same time keep um, keep keep some sort of activity. I think, you know, the, the toughest thing for me to let go of, I mean, the, the toughest um, delusion, I see myself clinging, it of course, has to do with the self-creation. But, but if you go look deeper, what I see is that it's the sense of achieving something. It's the sense of um, we are doing this for this other thing, which is functional to everything we do. You know, like uh, we're cooking a meal, you know, we're cutting something because we need to cut it. And if there is something that happens in the middle, okay, that's an inconvenience. And so, so we always have an objective to do stuff, you know, and in everyday life, we do objectives, even minute them. So, I mean, it could be bigger. And so we tend to go with Buddhist practice in the same way. And I think, you know, uh, when Hui Neng is saying, well, you really are, um, so you don't need to do anything for it. Um, and at the same time, you need to practice. But what are you practicing really is not to achieve, is to look. Uh, and, and that, you know, that, that conflict of, of how we do everyday life, you know, with kind of objectives and minute things that we need to get done versus how we are actually trying to realize that we really don't need to get done anything and there is no gain. Um, it, it is kind of the, the, the tough thing for me, at least to, to kind of, um, but the aim of what the difficulty is when we do when we go around our, our everyday life and we get trapped into thinking that in like um, something that we need to do is actually important, you know, and, uh, and at the same time it is, but at the same time it's not. And so how do we, you know, kind of see that small line? It is kind of the hardest um, thing for me. I don't know if I'm making sense to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually a good, a good, very good point, and thank you for that, Daikyo. Uh, yes, what we do is we, we bring the same thinking mind that uh, operates uh, in everything else. We bring that to the practice, and we look what you're saying is we're doing the same with the practice, and it's very true. And uh, and the, what we what the winning what the practice is re really telling us is that uh, we're already that right. So it's not about finding it's about expressing so the question that we need to actually uh, put to rest is the question of insufficiency right or not enough right that is the question that we need to put to rest because we are that from the beginning from the beginnings all beings are buddhas right we chant that again and again why because it's true now the question is not the question of who you are the question is how do you manifest how do you celebrate that which you are not that you have to find but you have to express so the challenge is in that right so when you cook a meal you're expressing it right you're not cooking a meal to eat you're cooking a meal as an expression of a buddha you're eating as an expression of a buddha 
You're not, you're not going to arrive because you already arrived. You're already there. You're going, your going is an expression of a Buddha. Your sitting down is an expression of the Buddha. Your laying down is an expression of the Buddha. This is what he's saying. The four modes of the Buddha. It's not more, it's not less. At any given time, at any given moment, there is a Buddha. You've arrived. So, and it actually, it, it is in a way, a reason to celebrate, not to look for anything else, right? And it changes everything. In a way, you know, we, we have to understand that our, our natural state of being is actually at ease. The reason that we are not at ease is because we create something, because we create a self. The self is not at ease. It's true. We are at ease while the self is not at ease. Now we're trying to put the self at ease and the self is not happy most of the time, right? Because the self is insufficient. Because the self is made up and the self requires, is high maintenance as we know, right? It requires a lot of attention, right? And it, and it needs a lot of people to like it, right? And it's going to argue with those who, does, who don't like it. And it's just a lot of work. So, but that's what we have to see. And so when we realize that our, our natural state of mind, state of being is at ease, then we can examine, why am I not at ease right now? What the hell? What's going on? We can return to that mind of being at ease, the state of being at ease again and again. As our natural birthright state of being. Why, why should I not be at ease right now? Right? So if we don't go to the mind, if we go to the, the being, then we recognize it. If we go to the mind, the mind will give us, always give us reason to not be at ease. To, to, to actually fortify the sense of insufficiency. So, not going to the mind to ask the question. Going to the experience of this moment. Going, to, going directly to what's going on, right? The way it feels, not to what I think. But merging the gap between who I think between who I am and what is happening. Then who is going where? Who is going where? When you are cooking a meal, that's it. That's it. Now sometimes people think, well, why should I bother doing anything? Because you're a Buddha. Because as a Buddha, you feel you feel that immense sense of responsibility to actualize it for the sake of all creations because you are everybody because you realize there is no me a part of you then you're naturally going to do good not because you want something out of it you don't need anything out of it because you're already there but it comes down to how, how am I expressing that and it is, it is a matter of actually waking up to that again and again every morning, cultivating this and celebrating it. So I'm not sure if it's answering the question, but it was a good point. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, Dion, good morning. Wrong button. Good morning. <laughs> Um, this actually reminds me of my first encounter with uh, Roshi Chanru. I was being boastful 
and saying how I use tea meditation to escape life <laughs> and find solace in those moments. And he pretty much asked me, why can't you do that in the rest of your life? And um, that struck me because why couldn't I? Why couldn't I find those moments washing dishes or cooking or even talking to my family? Um, but this section really pinpoints how I felt at that moment. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Yes. So to bring it to bring that so so we experience those moments such as you describe in, in, in tea, right? In uh tea ceremony. And then uh, so and we all do at different times, right? And and the question always comes down to what am I experiencing, right? What am I experiencing? Where does it come from? And who's saying it's not always available? Right? Why, why do I think it's not always available to me? So, thank you. All right, shall we move on? Okay. 15. Good friends, what are meditation and wisdom like? They're like a lamp and it's light. When there is a lamp, there is light. When there is no lamp, there is no light. The lamp is the light's body. The light is the lamp's function. They have two names, but not two body. This teaching concerning meditation and wisdom is also like this. Very simple, very much to the point. So what we see as two, we realize is not two. Without this, there is no that. That is this. So we can speak of them as two only, when we, only as long as we realize that they are not two. When we realize that, there, that it is not, we can say it is. Right? If you remember from the, the Diamond Sutra, when, only when A is not in A, A it can be A. Right? When we realize that it, it does not have separate existence, then we can speak of it. We can also speak of a self, not the self in the same way we think about it. We can sp speak of self and other, knowing that self and other are non-dual. Okay, fine. Now we can go back to self and other. Like the leaves and the tree and the roots. They are different. They are the same. So, commentary. Bill Porter. Winning does not teach people to assume a meditation posture, then to focus their attention on their breath or some other object of contemplation, then to enter into trance state of oneness with that object, and having done so, then to give rise to wisdom. He teaches people, he teaches us, that whether they sit, walk, stand, or lie down, to use the lamp of meditation to fill the ten directions with the light of wisdom. Winnegg does not teach one kind of Zen for beginners and another kind for advanced students. He only teaches one practice samadhi for one mind, the Buddha mind, which is no mind and which is our original nature. Now, the Atadipa we chant, right? So, you may know the English translation, it says, you are the light, dwell. You are the refuge, have no other as your refuge. Light of the Dharma, refuge of the Dharma, have no other as your refuge. You are the light. 
How can you think of it as being insufficient? That is disparaging the Buddha. How can you say you better work then or worse then? How can you say that you are not there, that you are not it? The only way to say that is to, to, to turn it off. Right? When the light is off, that's how it feels like. So to, to find that, to arrive at that from within, to, or to turn the attention inwardly, to get in touch with that light, to see, yeah, of course, of course, a Buddha. Never been otherwise. Anybody wants to comment on that before we move on? Yes. Raise on. About that, <clears throat> the end of that section um, in the commentaries, uh, meditation without wisdom is dead tree zen, and wisdom without meditation is pie in the sky zen. I thought those two expressions were very um, uh, powerful. I mean, they were very direct. Um, yeah. It's made up. Anything else, it's made up. It's, it's, a, it's a made up practice. And there are many of those. Or it's dead. Yeah. Right. That's what he said before. It's lifeless kind of practice, right? It's, it's yeah, there's nothing there. So, so in terms of Zen, there is a saying about practitioners who are like that. Uh, there's a saying that uh, if you cut this monk open, you won't find any blood. That's the kind of, I mean, Zen has a different way of uh, alluding to that, but that's exactly what it means. If you cut this monk open, you won't find any blood because the, the, the practice is lifeless. So, yeah, we have to practice real practice. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? About real practice. Okay, 16. Good friends, the Dharma isn't direct or indirect. It's people who are sharp or dull. For those who are deluded, there is indirect persuasion. For those who are aware, there is direct cultivation. Know your mind and see your nature. For those who are aware, there is basically no separation. For those who, are, who aren't aware, there are infinite kalpas on the wheel of rebirth. So, Huineng is not unaware that people have different capabilities, but he is concerned that practitioners might use such differences to justify different kinds of liberation, different kinds of enlightenment. From the point of view of reality, if it can be called a point of view, there are no distinctions. It is we who make distinctions. We doodle until we doodle up a self and a universe to go with that. It's a nice way to say that. We create and create and create until we find ourselves in it and a world to support that. But distinctions are the stuff of delusions. Huineng does not want to encourage more distinctions. Simple. Direct and indirect, the Chinese terms 
Tun and Chen can also be translated as sudden and gradual. If you remember, that was the source of contention between the North and the South. But they are used by Huineng as synonyms for straightforward or deceitful, pure and impure. Hence, time is not the issue, but attitude is. Translations aside, these terms became the battle cry of Shenzhou and later followers of Huineng, who felt that Zen was being misrepresented, if not distorted, by monks who were teaching their disciples to cultivate an understanding that proceeds indirectly and by stages. Now, the, the, uh, the difference between, uh, or the created differences between sudden and gradual. What is sudden realization? What is gradual realization, right? Now, and, you know, when we look at, at the previous teachings of what we just covered, it's actually very uh, clear because what we are realizing has always been there, right? So, and, and, and the practice is not about that. The practice is about seeing our own delusions, seeing how we cover it up. Now, when we realize it, yeah, it, it's sudden. And there is the gradual as well. Because, why? Because we are heavily conditioned. Because we, are, because we have habits, very strong habits, so there is the gradual, whether the gradual comes before the sudden or sudden comes after the gradual or they work together, it really doesn't matter. Because it's one realization of one thing, which is not a thing. We create a bunch of things around it or to cover it up with. But again, it's just creations. So creating uh, an idea of sudden, idea of gradual, and then picking a side is exactly what we do with what we do before we get into practice, as Daikyo was talking about, and what we end up doing with the practice. And then the practice, of course, is not going to work because we, we refuse to let go of that mind, that mind that separates. So, know your mind and see your nature, he says, and this is Huineng's motto, his teaching in a single breath. Know your mind and see your nature, and this directly relates to uh, Bodhidharma's teachings, who said, whatever you do, wherever you are, that's your real mind, that is your real Buddha. Beyond this mind, you will never find another Buddha. Whatever you do, wherever you are, this is it. Again, the four modes of Buddhahood. To search for enlightenment, that's Bodhidharma, to search for enlightenment or nirvana beyond this mind is impossible. This is why we get frustrated. Because it's not possible. Because as long as we reject this one here, we can't find anything else. There is no other Buddha other than the one that is searching for a Buddha. So to search for Buddha is to mount a donkey to go look for a donkey, as the saying goes. So, before we move on to 17, where are we at with this? Do you feel this way? Or do you still argue with yourself about that?
Any thoughts? Questions? Yes, Myogen. I just wanted to say, you know, in terms of maybe of my own life um, in Aikido, you know, I've been um, training for a test and I realized that I've been separating the test from my actual practice or the essence of my practice in Aikido. And um, it's it becomes something separate from me and something unattainable, you know? And then I separate myself from my expression of it. But then um, thinking about this or being with this, um, this part of the sutra especially, um, feeling uh, that Aikido is an expression of who I am now. Your, your camera is going on Yes, I know. There's a problem with the zoom. I'm not sure what's going on. It's spinning. But you, you guys can hear me? can hear you. All right. Well, do you know I look like, so we don't have to worry about that. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's just what I wanted to say. Just, just being able to um, express Aikido without thinking, about, thinking of it as something separate from me. Yeah. So, right. So, so and, and that, that separation is made up, right? Uh, but that separation, while being made up, right, while we make it up, becomes real. It becomes real for us, right? And, uh, and we proceed based on that, right? We will proceed based on that delusion, which becomes reality. Yeah, and then you start worrying about what other people, others, are thinking about it. Yes, right. Well, that creates other. So any separation creates separation, and... It creates something, and, and that, that something becomes others or other things. I'm going to try to disconnect the camera and see if that helps. Hang on one second. Ah, there I am. Okay, uh, yes, separation, uh, delusions, right? So, so the mind creates... And we think, so it's not just that the mind, there are thoughts that separate, but when the thought of separation appears, arises, then at that moment, there is a fork on the road. At that moment, there, there may be a choice for us, right? And the choice is, am I going to perpetuate it? Am I going to think the thought? Or am I going to just observe it? When I observe the thought, when I don't think it, when I don't speak it, when I don't act it, then what happens? And when I don't think the thought, I actually see that the thought is unsubstantiated. Right? Or the only way to, to, to make it substantiate is to make it substantiated, right? Because it doesn't show up as substantiated. Where does it come from? We have to ask. Right? Where does the thought come from? And when it moves on, where does it go? It shows up out of nowhere and it disappears into nowhere. So is it something in between the appearing and the disappearing? Am I, am I something between the moment of birth and the moment of death? Am I more than that, a thought that appears and disappears? 
right? I would like to believe that, but beyond that, am I? Or at least I'd like others to believe that. That I am more than that. That I, that I am more than an ephemeral expression. Okay, we move on. 17, good friends, <clears throat> since ancient times, this Dharma teaching of ours, both its direct and indirect versions, has proclaimed no, and the exclamation is on no, no thought as its doctrine, no form as its body, and no attachment as its foundation. What do we mean by a form that is no form? To be free of form in the presence of forms, and no thought, not to think about thoughts, or not to think the thoughts, as we just said. And no attachment, which is everyone's basic nature. That's a question, which is everyone's basic nature. Thought after thought, not to become attached, whether it's past thought, present thought, or a future thought. Let one thought follow another without interruption. Let them come and go. Do not grasp. Do not substantiate. Do not make a thing or a self out of their rising and vanishing thoughts. Once a thought is interrupted, the Dharma body becomes separated from the material body. When you go from one thought to another, do not become attached to any Dharma. Once one thought becomes attached, every thought becomes attached, which is what we call bondage. But when you go from one thought to another without becoming attached to any Dharma, there is no bondage. This is why no attachment is our foundation. Basic teachings of Buddhism, basic teachings of being, do not grasp. If you don't grasp, you don't have to worry about letting go. Right? So we don't have to work on trying to let go when there is no grasping. Only when there is grasping, there is the work of letting go. So what he's saying is just don't, don't, don't hold on. And then not holding on doesn't mean thoughts don't arise. It doesn't mean we don't, feel, we don't have experiences of sadness or, or joy or anger or lament or whatever, right? Or pain. Of course we do. And, and, and all that means is experience it. Don't grab, don't grasp it, don't make anything or anyone out of it. Allow it, allow for it. It will move. Everything does. Everything changes. So why not just ob watch it, observe it, acknowledge, and allow it to flow? Because when we allow it to flow, again, the question is, where do you find yourself? How can you find yourself when you allow all thoughts to move? <clears throat> This is from the commentary. A number of commentators have viewed this 
terms as the essence of Wineng's teachings. Yinshun says, no form as the body, no attachment as the foundation, and no thought as the doctrine. This is the method of practice handed down by the Platform Sutra. It is. Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, asked, once asked Bhimalakirti, what is the basis of the body? And this is actually a, a good examination, the way he's going to go through that. It's a good examination of substantiation. He says, what is the basis of the body? Vimalakirti said, craving is the basis of the body. Manjushri then asked, what is the basis of craving? And Vimalakirti said, false discrimination is the basis of craving. Manjushri said, what's the source of false discrimination? Vimalakirti said, erroneous thinking is the source of discrimination. Then Manjushri asked, what's the source of erroneous thinking? Vimalakirti said, no, non-abiding is the basis. And Manjushri said, what's the basis of non-abiding? Vimalakirti said, non-abiding has no basis, Manjushri. All things arise from this non-abiding root. Everything arises from nothing. Therefore, it is nothing. Even when arising, it is nothing. It doesn't become something because it is based on nothingness or it's based on non-abiding. And, you know, it's not that we have to uh, believe it. Look around. What does stay the same? What is fixed? What is unchanging? Anything in reality. Look around. Study. We need to study. We need to look. Is there anything that is substantiated, that is essentially, that, that has the, 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 the possibility, the ability to abide? Nothing is. So why are we different? How can we be different than anything else? Right? How, how, why are we different than a leaf? It's the same thing. Essentially, in essence, it's the same. The essence of a leaf appearing on a branch in the spring and then we find it on the ground, yellow, shriveled in the fall is the same as our essence. How could it not be the same? And if we understand that, I don't think we're going to fight each other as we fight. I don't think we're going to create so much issues. We will just be. I'm not simplifying it. I'm not ever ever simple. I'm just saying, if we can turn towards that again and again, then we are less likely to create so much suffering. Because suffering is based on, creating suffering is based on not understanding these basic teachings, basic facts, not teachings, just the way it is. And again, on non-abiding, this is uh, Seng Chao, Chinese Buddhist monk from 4th century, disciple of uh, Kumarajiva, said, The mind is like water. When it is still, there is reflection. When disturbed, no mirror. Muddled by folly and craving, fanned by misleading influences, it surges and billows, never stopping for a moment. It is like trying to look at a flowing stream to see your appearance. It never forms. 
if you take the movement of mind as the basis, then existence is born based on significations. When the reason completes its initial movement, then there is no more basis. If you take nothingness as the basis, then existence is born based on nothingness. Nothing is not based on nothing. At this point, there is no more basis. There is no more basis. There's nowhere else to go. There is nothing to stand on. So everything we think about ourselves, everything we think about others, we have to ask, what is it standing on? What gives rise to this, to the madness? In the head. What is it standing on? Who are we fooling? So, I think we're going to end there. I was hoping to go through 17 and... To 19, but we're gonna do it next time. Okay, couple of minutes. Anybody wants to uh, comment or add or take away? I have something that uh, kind of came into my mind while uh, Roshi was speaking. Good morning, uh, Jasmine. I um, I'm a recovering grasper, <laughs> and. Uh, I found um, while Roshi was talking, um, speaking, I realized that I have gotten to the other end of grasping where I have become fearful of grasping. Um, so it's creating fear around um, new experiences because I'm afraid I will grasp. Um, so yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> right. Thank you, Jasmine. So, so, so we create from, uh, wanting or not wanting, right? Being afraid of something is, uh, also substantiating something, right? Because if I'm afraid to grasp, I'm, I am still under the assumption that there is something to be grasped, Right. Which is, which is a stage, right? I mean, we go through all kinds of stages and steps, you know, in, in dissolving what we create or understanding that we create something. So it's a stage and we have to examine what is it that I'm afraid to grasp if there's nothing there to begin with, right? And as we always say, practice continues. Practice continues, right? And again and again, we have to go back to that state of mind that is essentially at ease, at ease, as is, right? From there, we have to ask, what is it that I'm afraid of? And also, isn't the fear itself creating the self? Yes. So it's a good point. Because the grasping doesn't go away. It just, the, the tendency to grasp doesn't go away. It just shifts from this to that. That is what ha what's happening, <laughs> yes. Right, right. So the fear of grasping can, can become the fear of no grasping, right? Mm -hmm. So, but thank you, Jasmine. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... To be continued, uh, most likely next Sunday. This seems to be uh, 
fascinating for, for all of us. And uh, it's also very conducive because it is kind of summing it up in a very clear way right in front of our face. So let's continue next time. Thank you.